Bom dia, boa tarde. Welcome to another PortuguesSoccer.com podcast. I am your guest host, John Neves, back here again to talk about my favorite subject, your favorite subject, and that is, of course, Portuguese football, Portuguese soccer, whatever word you use in your part of the world. Episode number 65. I hope I come to you all safe and sound as we, of course, are here to talk again about another week regarding the Liga and the national team news in Portugal. Um, first off, we'll start off like I do every podcast, and that is, of course, talking about the upcoming schedule. 28 matches have been played. We have six matches left in the season. We have kind of an unusual weekend where there are no matches Friday or Saturday because we just had midweek play. But we get going on Sunday. And by the way, what a way to begin round 29 with Braga hosting Sporting. Um, I mean, that is a very, very big match. And that's what we have to look forward to this upcoming match day uh, this weekend. And again, six matches left between here and the weekend of May the 19th. Um, we, of course, have action this weekend. Nothing in the middle of the week. Next weekend, we will have match day 30. And then the following week, the middle of the week, we, of course, again, we've got to finish up all these weeks before we get to May the 19th. So we wind up having matches again in the middle of the week. And, of course, the big one uh, next week, uh, week uh, round 30, uh, excuse me, round 31 is, of course, Benfica hosting uh, Porto. And uh, between this upcoming this weekend with uh, Braga and Sporting and then next week, With Benfica Porto, we are now starting to get to the heart of the season where these big matches that involve two of the big four clubs, and yes, I am saying big four clubs in Portugal, you know, really start to take on a much bigger meeting. And the biggest question right now, I think, in Portugal is sporting. Um, I have said in past episodes, I think they had it wrapped up. I also said in past episodes that I think that there is a chance This weekend, I'm not going to say either one of those things because I think it's pretty obvious with the fact that they only have a four-point lead after at one point having a double-digit lead on Porto that obviously the race is back in Portugal with six matches left. And the biggest question right now with sporting is what happened with sporting? They have dropped six points in their last four matches And even though impressively they have not lost all season, they have nevertheless dropped six points in their last four matches and they've opened the door for Porto to get back into the title race. Now, it's also important to understand that with Porto, the last time that Porto lost a Liga match was at the end of October when they lost at Passos de Ferreira. And since the end of October, they have not lost any Liga matches. So Porto have been doing what they need to do to get back into this race. And the reality of the matter is, is although sporting hasn't lost, something has gone wrong with sporting where they have dropped all these points. And these days, the biggest criticism seems to be about Paulinho, where when you really think about it, he makes this January transfer move, sporting getting him from Braga, Nuno Santos has been one of the players during this stretch since January that hasn't really been playing as much. And right now he is bearing the brunt of all the criticism. And at the end of the day, when you are a striker, your job is to score goals. 
And even though he did score, I think in his most recent or match before that, he is certainly not scoring as much as he did with Bragan. Right now, he seems to be bearing the brunt of it. And the question is, is is it all his fault? Uh, again, Sporting hasn't lost. They've done everything they can to walk away with at least a point. But something has changed with Sporting that has resulted them in losing in all these points. And I think to me, although you can't put the blame squarely on Paulinho, Whatever Ruben Amarin was doing in the fall, right up until January before they made this move, it was working. They seemed to be running away with the league. They were scoring these late goals. Giovanni Cabral scores this great goal that gets them to the Tasa of the Liga final where they win it. And everything was clicking. But since then, it has not been the same sporting team that has allowed Porto to get back into the race. And right now, Paulinho is taking the brunt of this criticism. Now, whether or not that's fair or not, again, this is professional sports. The lack of winning, at least on a consistent basis, has sort of coincided when he has arrived. Uh, Giovanni Cabral, although I know he recently scored a big goal, he is certainly not as influential as he was back in the fall. He's certainly not scoring like he did last June when, if you remember, we resumed playing after COVID, he was scoring all those big goals. He scored some big goals, but he's not scoring as much as he did June. So sporting is just not the same team that they have been during the first five months of the season. But at the end of the day, they still have a four-point lead, and they still have that cushion, but they cannot afford to lose any more points. And what's really scary about the sporting situation, you know, the first half, you know, the first time that everybody played each other the first time in the first 17 weeks of the season before you kind of did the alternate where if you hosted the first time, the second time, you know, you would have to go away. Sporting is now dealing with the situation where now they've got to go to Braga. They're going to go to Benfica later this year. And the reality of the matter is, is the schedule has also caught up to them. And this weekend is so incredibly dangerous for sporting because if they drop any points or if they suffer their first loss of the season, they run the nightmare scenario of possibly seeing their lead dwindle to one point if Porto win and More ends. So this is probably, in my opinion, when you think about sporting, you know, they didn't play in the Europa group stage. They obviously didn't have the result they wanted in the of Portugal, but they win the Tasa of the Liga. And you could say that winning the Tasa of the Liga was maybe the most important match of the season because they won a trophy. I think that there's no doubt that this weekend, this is their most important match of the season, going to Braga. Because Braga right now still has hopes for second place. They are clearly one of the four best teams in the league. And obviously, they are a team that's growing. You know, I don't think Braga is a pushover. I don't know whether or not it's fair to call them one of the big four right now. But this is not a very, very easy match, as Porto learned about a month ago when they went there and they drew with them. So this is a very big match for Sporting this weekend because if they drop points again, they're going to deal with this nightmare scenario where Porto could get even closer. And that buffer they had, that double-digit lead, is gone. So this is a very scary times. And does Paulinho deserve all the criticism? Maybe not, but at the end of the day, it has coincided with the fact that since he's joined them, 
the club really as a whole, all the results and in terms of what they expected from Paulinho hasn't come to fruition. And it's very sad that he had to shut off the comments on his social media. Um, but at the end of the day, unfortunately, that's what happens when you play for a big club that is competing for the championship and you don't get the results. And the only thing that's changed between October, November, and December, and now is the fact that they spent all this money on you and you coming in has kind of forced a little bit of the changes with the lineup. But the fans are divided. The media, you know, Amorinha said that he is fully behind Paulinho and he's doing what a manager is supposed to be doing. It is not the time right now for a manager to say that a player is the problem. This is not the time. You can't do that with all the money that's been spent on Paulinho. So Ruben Amorim needs to basically back him and give this guy the confidence because they need him to score. And they don't necessarily need him to score one goal. They really need him to score two goals. They need the Paulinho from Braga last year and two years ago. That's the Paulinho that Sporting bought. And I think that's a very big thing. Now, Nuno Santos is supposed to be back in the 11 this weekend. That has been well-received by a lot of fans. Maybe that's been one of the things that's been hurting Sporting, is the fact that he hasn't been fully involved. I mean, look, the kid did a great job. I mean, he has been a great player. He's been a great signing from Rio Ave. We'll see if, in fact, Nanu Santos coming back, you know, plays a very big difference. But it's amazing that Sporting has this pressure. And are they succumbing to this pressure? Is Sporting... The players, you know, it's been discussed. Zepa Zedo said this earlier this year. They haven't been playing in front of full stadiums, dealing with the pressure. The young kids haven't had to deal with what other young kids other years have had to deal with, and that is the pressure of playing in front of somebody else's stadium and, and dealing with the fans. And the question is, is are the sporting players now properly dealing with the pressure? And I think this weekend... The match in Braga is going to go a long way toward telling that story. And I'm not going to sit here and give you my opinion. I think the opinion will become obvious depending on the results. And if Sporting wins the rest of their matches, they are the champions. They will win their first title in many years. They will go to the Champions League. I mean, I think right now, so far, it's still safe for them. They are still going to go to the Champions League. I think worst-case scenario for them, second place. They still have enough of a buffer where they're going to make it to the Champions League, you know, at least as a top two team. But this weekend, this is a very big match. And this is no doubt the biggest match of the season for them. They will not have Ruben Amarini on the sidelines because he is still suspended. And this is the moment of truth for sporting. And we'll see, you know, how they're going uh, to respond. Now, you also, again, got to give credit to Porto. Uh, Pinto da Costa gave an interview this evening. He believes that his team is going to win it. They could smell first place. This is a Porto team that had a lot of success in the Champions League. They, again, have not lost since the first week, excuse me, since the last weekend of October. And Porto right now has all the momentum. They are just firing on all cylinders. But what's great about this sport is that Sports is beautiful because sometimes it does not follow the script of expectations. And this weekend, Sporting could win. Porto could lose at more than ends, And then all of a sudden, the pressure's off. 
On the other hand, if Porto wins and Sporting drops points, then the pressure grows. And that's what makes sports so beautiful is that the results tell the story. And I think this weekend, we'll see what happens. But I think right now, if you are Porto, you have to feel very good about your chances of getting closer. You still got that big match at Benfica coming up in less than two weeks. Obviously, that's a result where Porto Benfica is going to be looking for the three points to get back in the hunt for second place. And obviously, any negative result for Porto in that match against Benfica benefits sporting. But I would tell you right now that based on this team playing in the Champions League, the fact that they have a veteran team that won the Liga last year, that won the Taça de Portugal, Porto right now is really setting themselves up to make a very big run with six matches left. And again, I think if you're sporting, you need to really, really be very careful about this weekend. You need those three points. And if you're Porto and you're Sergio Conceição, whatever you've been doing, it's been working. You've managed to play a busy European schedule. You managed to play a busy domestic schedule. And here you are now with six matches left and you're only four points away. And let me tell you, if sporting lose this advantage, it's going to go down as one of the more biggest disappointments in Portugal. Um, I mean, it's, it's going to be incredible. But this is what makes the rest of the season exciting for us as fans. The fact that we have this storyline where we thought it was all wrapped up and we were going to be thinking about second place. And now here we are back. There's a race for first place. There's a race for second place this year, which gives you the automatic uh, Champions League spot. And I think that's what makes this race also the more exciting. Braga need to beat Sporting this weekend to have any hope to try to get back into second place. Um you know, their president has announced that he's going to run for president again of the team. He's going to candidate himself again. And this is a very big match this weekend. If, if, if Braga wants to be one of the big clubs in Portugal, they could take a big step toward getting the three points this weekend. So uh, a great match on Sunday. We've got the other teams playing on Monday. The storylines in the Liga is that this is a very exciting race. This is obviously a very top-heavy league. It's usually the same three or four teams that are in the race, especially this year. But I think this year we have a very ex exciting storyline. I think this week is going to be very exciting. And again, we're going to be entering into a very busy stretch of the season. You've got matches this weekend. you got matches next weekend. And then the following middle of the week, we'll go, we go back to playing in the middle of the week, especially with the Big Classico in the Stadio Delusion. Even though the Stadio Delusion is going to be empty in fans, you know, by the way, that it's going to be full of emotion on the pitch. And by the way, I have to tell you, I don't understand why the TV doesn't put in the fan noises. Um, every time I watch a game and I get to hear the players on the pitch, it does provide a very interesting perspective. But in my opinion, I would really love to see, like they did with the Bundesliga earlier this year, I would just like to see fan noises back in the stadium, even if it's fake. I just like that better. I think it makes for better television. And as I've said on this podcast many, many times, okay, that what makes television is a very big part of football soccer. It is a very big thing that provides the most amount of money for clubs in Europe. 
And I just, you know, I just have to say, I was watching it the other day when I was watching the uh, Porto game and then I was watching the Benfica game that I just, I wish they would pipe in fan, uh, fan sounds, supporter sounds into the game that I think would be making much more attractive to watch on television. Not necessarily for the Portuguese diehards like us, but for those that we're trying to get interested in our Liga. And I just wish that people would start thinking that way instead of thinking that an empty uh, stadium is the best way to go with the games. But again, that's just my opinion. Part two of the PortugueseSoccer.com podcast, and I want to dedicate this particular segment to the European Super League, which, as we all know, was the very big topic of this week. And let me just say this. The people, you know, there was 12 teams. Uh, nine of them had basically clubs that were owned by somebody. And then the three Spanish clubs are basically in a Saucy fan system that play a big part like Barcelona does where the fans have a big say over the club and then the president uh, presides over the team. I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. Um, But here's the thing. The people that own these clubs that wanted to do the Super League, these owners did not become billionaires by buying these clubs. They were already billionaires before they bought these clubs. These are individuals that, you know, have run businesses that have created a lot of wealth for them that have put themselves in the position to buy these clubs. You look at, you know, the Russian owner of Chelsea. You look at some of the American owners of like Arsenal and Manchester United. You look at some of the people that own the uh, Serie A clubs. These are individuals that have a lot of money and part of their portfolio is buying these teams. And the thing that surprises me the most about the Super League, and nobody really talks about it, is um, the fan outrage over the Super League was incredible. You know, these teams in Europe, these clubs in Europe, they have a lot of history. Some of them have been around for 80, 90 years, maybe even more. Some of them go through generations where You basically love this club because of your father. Your father loves this club because of his father and so on. There is a history in Europe when it comes to, you know, comes to football. And it is something that is passed down from family to family. And when you live in a country like England, where they do love the Champions League, but they also love the Premier League, you know, whether you're Manchester United. Yeah, you get excited about playing in Europe. If you're Arsenal, you get excited about playing in Europe, although these days mostly the Europa League. You're also, your fans are also excited about playing the other leagues, you know, the Stoke Cities, the Leicesters in Europe that maybe aren't as attractive as playing a Real Madrid or an AC Milan or a Barcelona. But English clubs, for instance, have this big tradition. And the thing that confuses me about a lot of these owners, again, in most of the clubs, not necessarily the Spanish clubs, is... Did they not talk to their employees that work day-to-day with the club to get the feeling that if they make this decision to go to the Super League during the week and not be a part of the UEFA Champions League, did they not understand the outcry there would be in that decision? Um, I'm sure someday someone is going to make a documentary. It might be an ESPN 30 for 30. The BBC might do some type of documentary. But I'm very curious to know among these owners, 
how many of them really went out of their way to really understand their decision? Because these gentlemen that own these teams, they do not become as successful as they do without doing their homework. If they build, you know, uh, a facility, if they build a business in a certain part of the country, if they move their brand to another country, you know, they do their homework. They try to learn about the culture. They try to learn if their product will sell in that country. They try to learn about the local laws. These people that have businesses all over the world, they do their homework. And did they do their homework here to understand that a decision to have a Super League you know, who did they talk to about this? Did they not realize that there would be any outcry? Now, the Super League has been around for a very long time. It's been discussed for a very long time. I've talked about it in, in a few episodes ago about how I thought it would be coming. I didn't think it was going to come this year, but I thought maybe four or five years down the road, especially after the current Champions League setup expires, that it was going to be a possibility. So I guess what I'm trying to say is, is the biggest mistake that this group of 12 did is that they really listen to the fans? Did they listen to their employees who are embedded doing the day-to-day work of the team to understand how much their decision was going to upset fans? Because I think the owners, for the first time in their life, after building the businesses that they did, I think for the first time in their life, they were smacked back, and I think they're shocked about it. You know, you, the fan... In most cases, maybe the most amount of money spend in a year is you buy a car. Maybe the most amount of money you spend in a year in your life is buying a home and going through all the stress that involves with buying a home and going through the realties and the legal fees and all that. Some people become entrepreneurs and buy a restaurant or they start a restaurant. They open up a, a car dealership. Maybe they fix cars. Whatever it is about an entrepreneurship, there are most people that they get into that and they wind up being involved in a business that's multi-million. You're talking about billionaires that deal with these humongous businesses and the fact that they could not understand how their decision was going to upset people. This is what really shocks me about the biggest mistake they made. And, you know, I mean, did the English owners, the English clubs talk to the people that work day to day? You know, was this a decision where maybe the owner and the president and maybe Two or three other executives knew about it, but not necessarily what we call the front office staff. The rest of the people that worked to the team, they didn't know. Because maybe if they did know, they would have told somebody and said, boy, that's going to be a very bad decision. You're not handling this the right way. Fans are not going to like this decision. Did they get any input? And I think to me, that's what I want to know about this decision. Did these people that run the Super League keep it such a secret up until last Sunday that they didn't bother to get input from the respective people that work day to day in their clubs. Did they get opinions from the pl- their own players? Did they get opinions from the managers? You know, to really better understand their decision. But you know, the fans have spoken. There's a lot of tradition with fans. They want to see relegation and promotion. They don't want to see close competitions. That is the essence of football in Europe. Now, there's also some things that I think haven't been reported properly about all this. First off, number one, a lot of people like to basically say that they were trying to do the American model, the NBA model, where there is no promotion or relegation. But I think that what they were trying to do with the Super League is they were trying to follow the FIBA model, 
obviously FIBA with the B and FIBA means basketball. And my understanding, and, and I don't admit to following FIBA, you know, I do follow the, the Liga Placard in Portugal, the basketball Liga, but I have to admit, it's not like Portuguese clubs have a big history playing in these big competitions in FIBA, at least not to the extent that they do it. They get a lot of success in it. But that was supposed to be the format of it, and there would be certain teams that would be able to enter this competition via promotion and relegation. But that's my understanding of what this was going to be about this European Super League, where there would be certain teams that would be allowed to come in. Um, whereas I've heard a lot of people complain that it's about an open competition, that, excuse me, it's a close competition, and that apparently uh, was not the case. And let me also say something as somebody that is from North America. English clubs, Serie A clubs, the clubs in the La Liga have a tremendous amount of history. Very rarely in Europe do we see brand new clubs make an appearance in the Champions League. A lot of the clubs that make an appearance in the Champions League are clubs that have been around for many years. You know, when I think about what is a brand new club in Europe, I think about Glasgow Rangers who went bankrupt. They dropped down to the fourth division. They came back as a new club and they worked their way back to playing in the Scottish, you know, in the premiership. Um, but there aren't many clubs that start from that are brand new clubs that come back and compete in Europe. And I think that's what these owners really got the mistake is they don't understand the tradition in Europe. But I also want to defend some of the American points on this. The NBA did not become the NBA until the mid-80s when Larry Bird and Magic Johnson created this tremendous rivalry. And then eventually Michael Jordan came along in the 90s and the NBA became what we know as now with the NBA with the current players of you know LeBron James and, and Kevin Durant. But the NBA does not have the history of over 80, 90, or 100 years like the premiership. Um, you know, you might have that in baseball. You might have that a little bit in football. The football kind of goes back to the 60s and 70s. But I've been seeing a lot of criticism about the American model being brought in, and it's probably true, you know, especially in the case of the American owners. But the reason why people in the United States, and let's include Canada because they play in some of the leagues as well, the reason why there's no promotion or relegation, for instance, in Major League Soccer, and I get very annoyed when people talk about this because I think to a certain extent, maybe they don't understand it. Um, Major League Soccer is about 26 years old. And if you're going to pay an expansion fee, which means that you start a brand new team, which, by the way, again, in Europe, there aren't many brand new teams that compete at the highest levels. It's teams that have an incredible amount of history. But in American sports, there are a lot of brand new teams that have come up in the last 20 to 30 years. And when you take Major League Soccer, they've only been around 26 years. And in the last like 10 years, I don't know, what has it been, seven or eight new clubs that have been added? And each of those owners have basically paid something like 100, 200 million, 300 million to join Major League Soccer. The reason why Major League Soccer does not have promotional relegation, in my opinion, in my opinion, is because a lot of the owners have spent an absurd amount of money to buy a team name. They've spent an absurd amount of money to compete in Major League Soccer. And to have promotion and relegation, especially because the 
Second division in the United States isn't very strong. I know the U.S. ISL has some teams like Louisville and, you know, Sacramento. If you are an owner of a team and you're spending $300 million to get a team into Major League Soccer, I don't think you want to be a part of a system where if your team sucks, you're going to be relegated to the second division. And all of a sudden, the $300 million you spent becomes $20 million overnight, and that's the value of your team unless you get back to getting promoted and coming back to the first division. And unfortunately, in the in, when you think about the NBA, when you think about the NFL, the reason why there are closed leagues essentially is because, first of all, there is no second division in those other sports. The reality of the matter is it's all about money. A lot of those owners that spend all that money, some owners that are brand new, I mean, I think Toronto Raptors are what, maybe – 23, 24 years old, for instance, you know, they don't have the history of a big European club. They're very young leagues and people that have spent millions and millions and millions of dollars to be a part of these big leagues in the United States and in Canada. Basically, they don't want to lose their spot because they've spent all this money. So I'm not here to defend. But what I'm saying is, is a lot of people criticize that model. And I think a lot of people want to see promotion and relegation with Major League Soccer. But the reason why there is no promotion and relegation is because so much money is spent on bringing the uh, teams in. Um, and I think that's a very important point is it's apples and oranges. You have a different system in England, in Europe, and you have a different system in America. And the difference is that the American traditions are a lot smaller than Europe. But the fans in Europe spoke. The owners now know the fans' passion for the sport. Um, I know Real Madrid and Barcelona are still advocating to have a Super League in the future. There's talk of all this contract, but I'd be very surprised that it comes back. But right now, UEFA won. Football fans won. I think as much as there's a lot of disappointment and I think there's a lot of anger, I think if you're a football fan in Europe, you have to feel very good right now about what you've been able to accomplish with this outrage that has led to all these owners really rethinking about their place in Europe. And I know there's been some talk about looking into the ownership of teams. I know a lot of Arsenal fans want to see their team sold. But at the end of the day, somebody that has spent a billion dollars to buy a team, and somebody that has spent millions upon millions of dollars every season to keep the team afloat and buy new players, you know, with the transfer system in Europe, I don't think they're going to sell their teams just because fans are upset. They're going to want to get their value back. And I would be very curious to see what's going to happen in the future where who's going to want to buy a team in Europe. Um, I'm just very curious about that because again, there's been a lot of teams that have spent a lot of money in Europe to own these teams and you just can't expect someone to come along and pay half the price. No one's going to want to lose a half a billion dollars. So I think that's very interesting. But hopefully these owners have learned their lesson. Hopefully they understand the passion and the fact that they have a good thing here with the Champions League. And they've got a good thing here competing in the domestic leagues and that it works. And that these open competitions in Europe are promotion and relegation, that it works. Again, Real Madrid and Barcelona still seem to want to have this European Super League. But I think at the end of the day, it's the fans that have spoken. And I think that's what's been the most impressive thing about this week. Not just the fact that this league crumbled in 48 hours, is that the fans 
have spoken. And I'm very curious to see in the next few years, you know, how the teams and these owners are going to start to act in relation to making decisions with the fans. But um, I think a lot of owners buy these teams. It's a good place to put their money. It's good prestige. And I'd be very curious to see if any of them decide to sell. Um, They're certainly not going to sell very cheap. And I don't see how people are going to be able to buy the team when it's worth several billion dollars. So, but nevertheless, it was an incredible week for fans. And they obviously are the biggest winners this week. The Champions League came up with this new format that involves a lot more matches. I know Pep of Manchester City was not happy, you know, about the fact that it means more matches. It means a more crowded schedule. Um, Obviously, UEFA is trying to do everything they can to keep these big teams happy. Um, You know, the fact that they're coming up with playing more matches, it means more money. So I'll be very curious to see in the near future what's going to happen with that. Will fans... um, appreciate the fact that yes while their clubs are still competing in the champions league are they going to be happy with the fact that there's so many more matches that might affect how they play in the domestic league if all these players are going to be so tired and if you deal with injuries um but i guess that's the price of success the fans won the champions league is back it's one of the most beautiful if not the most popular competition in europe but again under this new format We'll see what happens. And by the way, how does this affect Portugal? The fact that there is no European Super League. Obviously, the good news is that the Portuguese clubs basically get to keep competing for the Champions League. They get competing for Europe. They get to compete for all that money because basically under the Super League, it doesn't look like they were going to be a very big part of it. Um, I was listening to the show on Sirius Radio. It was on Monday um, starting with the third minute of the serious broadcast on Monday morning, Charlie Stilettano. For a lot of people that don't know who Charlie Stilettano is, he is the gentleman that runs the International Champions Cup. He is one of the most influential people in soccer, football around the world. He is one of the few people probably in North America that could call Agnelli and you know, in um, Juventus and you know, call you know, Florentino at Real Madrid, and they're going to pick up the phone for him. Look him up on social media. Look him up on Wikipedia. You'll learn all about him. He mentioned that, uh, you know, what he had heard about, in addition to the 12 clubs, when they talked about the other three clubs that were going to be a founding members, members, it was mentioned that maybe Porto was going to be one of those clubs. He said that that's not what he heard. He had heard it was going to be a, another team from a big five league. This is not to say that Porto wasn't approached. You know, obviously they've admitted informally, Pinto da Costa, that they were approached informally. But I trust this guy's opinion. And again, don't take my word for it. Listen to the episode if you have access to it in North America. But he's one of the biggest, most connected people in the world. And he said that Porto wasn't one of the three teams that were supposed to go in. Um, and the point is, is that if Portuguese clubs were not going to be a part of the Super League, at least now right away, that would have meant a lot of money lost. And the fact that the Champions League and UEFA is still alive, it means some of our clubs could compete in the richest club uh, club competition in Europe, especially with the fact that next year we have two, possibly three teams competing in the Champions League. And I think that's the really the good news when it comes to Portugal. Um, because right now, if things were to go forward with the Super League, based on, again, listening to this radio interview, and again, look them up, 
Charlie Stolitano, it looks like Porto wasn't going to be one of those clubs. And I know Benfica had mentioned about possibly getting into the competition in the European Super League. They came out and denied the record story. And at the end of the day, we don't really know what the truth is of all this. But it's good news that for Portugal, that there is no Super League. It's good news that there will still continue to be a Champions League. We'll see how this new format affects Portuguese clubs. You know, obviously, they're going to be playing a lot more matches than they have already. So if you are a big club in Europe, you you know, in Portugal, you still get to compete for the most lucrative club in the club competition in the world. But now you got to compete and play in more matches, not to mention the fact the Liga and the Taça de Portugal and the Liga Cup. So pay attention to that, how that works out with the Portuguese clubs in the future. segment into the portuguesesoccer.com podcast episode number 65 as always folks thank you for listening the numbers continue to be outstanding if you haven't had a chance to check out my past interviews with players such as Pedro Santos um, interviewed Mark Santos of Vancouver uh, look at all the past interviews go to portuguesesoccer.com slash podcast and I've already got some big guests lined up coming in the future and looking to bring them on but final segment and this is what i call the off the pitch segment the business segment and uh big news came out today about euro 2020 it looks like they're going to move some matches out of some parts of europe looks like england is going to get some more euro 2020 matches uh russia is going to get some euro 2020 matches um looks like the matches in hungary are going to feature fans portugal plays two euro 2020 matches in hungary and UEFA said that up to 12,500 fans would be allowed to compete, uh, to watch the match in Munich. The German Federation came out today saying, not so fast. We still want to see how the pandemic evolves over the next uh, two months. Um, and even though UEFA said they could have a certain amount of fans, 14,500, I believe was the number. Um, the biggest question is, is the, the German government's not ready to say for that Portugal Germany match uh, in Munich that they're going to have fans at that matches. So um, the good news is at least two of the three matches will have fans. But, um, you know, the European rollout of vaccines, as we know, again, not my opinion, look at the news. It continues to be very slow compared to what's going on in the United States. Uh, Portugal, I think, has vaccinated something like over 2 million people. Um, they are not apparently going to get any matches for Euro 2020. As we all know, the Portuguese government has said that no fans will be allowed and they will look to revisit that policy when it comes to next season in August. Um, so we'll see what happens. But uh, right now, the good news, and there is good news, and that is there will be a Euro 2020, although, of course, it's taking place this summer. And that is something I think we have to look forward to as fans and the fact that we are still going to have a European competition this season. Obviously, throughout Europe, we've been used to not having any fans at matches. And I think at the end of the day, if there's anything that is involved in this pandemic, is the fact that we've had at fans at matches. Or if we had no fans at matches, they are still playing this sport. And I think this summer, that at least it is very good news that uh, we still have uh, competition uh, playing. And Portugal, the most recent report is still no fans at matches. 
Um, obviously, Portugal right now, the, the numbers continue to be low. They only had one death on Friday. But like I've said in past episodes, and I'll continue to say it, Portugal is really doubling down on their efforts now. They cannot afford to have another summer without the tourists. And right now, Portugal is doing pretty good in Europe. They're doing fantastic. Uh, the numbers continue to be low. The hospitalizations continue to be low. And the future is certainly shaping up to be better for Portugal. And I think uh, once you start getting into May, once you start getting into June, I think a lot of people are going to start making their decisions about, especially the immigrants, France, Switzerland, North America, England, South Africa, Australia, will start making their decisions about whether or not they're going to go to Portugal on vacation. And, you know, will somebody have to be vaccinated to be able to enter Portugal? Um, that's a question that remains to be seen. Uh, will it always be the, what we've been doing lately? Uh, I know a lot of people that have gone to Portugal, they've had to take a PCR test. And as long as it's negative within 72 hours, they are allowed to go to Portugal. I think you'll probably uh, still see that. So, you know, we'll see what happens. Um, I actually got my first vaccine shot earlier this week. I'm supposed to get my second shot in about uh, three weeks. Proud to say that if I do go to Portugal this summer, and right now it's 50-50, whereas a few episodes ago I said it was 70-30 that it will go. But to go to Portugal and still have to deal with restrictions and not being able to on weekends to leave the county to go to another county still has me on a 50-50 level right now. But at least I've taken the first step. And again, this was my choice. Most of my family has gotten the shot. And, um, you know, we'll see. We'll see what happens in the future. But where I live... Thousands of people every day are getting their shot and things are going uh, very well. And uh, I'll tell you, other than a sore arm, I had no problem. But we'll see when I get the second shot. That's really supposed to be when you start to feel things. So um, obviously when the time comes, I'm happy to share that with you if I feel anything uh, different or if I have any uh, bad effects. But uh, I'm not here to advocate for you. That's your business whether or not you want to get it. But I just wanted to share that I did finally get a shot this week, and I'm supposed to get my second shot uh, coming up in about uh, three weeks. Folks, this has been episode 65 of the PortugueseSoccer.com podcast. Thank you so much for listening. I cannot say enough. Thank you for your support. The numbers have been awesome. Uh, I'm beginning to learn more and more through the analytics. What is it that you want to hear? I'm looking forward to having bigger guests coming on in the future. Some of them uh, want to wait a little bit longer before they come on because they're having uh, busy schedules. And I'm looking forward to continue to provide this product on a weekly basis, which I've been pretty much doing on a regular basis uh, going back to last fall. Again, please stay safe. Take care of your families. Hopefully in your part of the world, things are getting better for you. And again, like I always like to say, hopefully this summer, for many of us, hopefully many of us can go back to Portugal. We can do what we love doing, going to the Fashta, seeing many of our families, taking care of many of our personal businesses in Portugal. And of course, at the end of the day, maybe catch a match or two and, and be a part of that environment that so much of us enjoy uh, being a part of. And we'll all get to that. Hopefully, we'll be able to do that eventually as soon as this summer. Folks, take care of yourself. Please stay safe. And I'll talk to you next week. Thank you.